Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia. A global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Erica Williams, in, in what you witness as a North County resident, are they able to have an impact on these decades of, of problems that Colin Gordon writes about? Um, yes and no. So I started a red circle in... March of 2017 in direct response to what happened. Because I am a lifelong North County resident, my children are students in the Ferguson Florissant School District, and they had to wait to start their school year one week, which caused some trauma and things of that nature. They had to wait because of the protests that had broken the out. The protests that had broken out. There the were safety response. concerns and things of that nature. There were still, you know, traffic blocking the streets and all of that. And so the school buses couldn't freely travel through the streets in the school district. And so my kids had to wait, you know, first day of school. Everyone has that excitement about getting ready to go to school. Fast forward five years later. Ferguson Florissant has decided this year that they are going to make all of the students from sixth grade and higher use clear backpacks. Mm. So that has become another source of trauma within the schools, dealing with lack of resources and things of that nature. Instead of coming to some type of a solution to actually um, look at school violence, they kind of penalize the children and... One final point I'll make with just the Ferguson Florissant School District um, and how that goes into this conversation, they separated the primary and, and, and the elementary school children. So pre-K through second grade is at one school. Three through five is at a different school. So at a red circle, we provide mentoring and tutoring to children who are dealing with trauma. Mm -hmm. They are now resource officers placed in these pre-K through two schools. When you say resource officers, you mean police officers. I mean police officers. In the pre-K and in kindergarten. In the pre-K through second grade school. So it's kind of like 
what happened five years ago is almost taking us in a direction that we don't want to go. Instead of moving the community forward, it's taking it backward. David Dwight, what goes through your head when you're, you're hearing some of these things Erica describes? Yeah, what Erica is describing about the experience of students of color in schools really uh, connects back to what Colin spoke to about uh, whether people are treated as citizens or as subjects acted upon by their governments or their education systems. And I think that's one example where students of color are, are seen as criminals, seen as more adult um, than they actually are when they're children within school districts. Um, and it's experience that people have all across the region. I've had the experience of going to West uh, municipalities that are mostly white in St. Louis and been seen immediately as criminal. Um, my car broke down in one neighborhood that I was in visiting a friend um, and ended up needing my whole engine replaced. Um, but when the police were called, I was seen as suspect. Um, I ended up being on the side of the road for more than an hour as they did extensive background checks beyond what was needed for my car breaking down. They're running you for warrants and things like that? Oh, yeah, checking to see if I owned the car, checking all of these things, really questioning why I was even there present in this white neighborhood. And this is after the events of Ferguson? This is in the last couple of years this happened to you? In the last couple of years. Um, Colin Gordon, hearing some of these stories today, um, <laughs> I guess, are you unpleasantly surprised to hear that, that things are not changing? Or No, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, I think the key thing that, that comes out of all these stories is, you know, we have a system. America is just as much a colonial power as England ever was. America is just as much a colonial power as France ever was. In fact, America is more so a colonial power than they because she's a hypocritical colonial power behind it. What is 20th, what, what do you call second-class citizenship? Why, that's colonization. Second-class citizenship is nothing but 20th century slavery. How are you going to tell me you're a second-class citizen? They don't have second-class citizenship in any other government on this earth. They just have slaves and people who are free. Well, this country is a hypocrite. They try and make you think they set you free by calling you a second-class citizen. No, you're nothing but a 20th century slave. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. So I have been told. We will be here tomorrow. Professor Gerald Horn, our book club. Uh, we will be reading uh, Gerald Horn's biography on Paul Robeson. A uh, retired firefighter uh, said he'd be willing to narrate. Uh, we've had people uh, kind of take turns doing the narration for some of our books. Uh, so if we have other folks who would like to do a little reading, that would be grand. This is a short book, so I think we should be done. Five sessions max, maybe. So nobody will have to do uh, a lot of reading, but narrator narrators we have multiple people that would be grand counter racist yoga retreat in florida 
December 28 to January 1, uh, the price $730 US, deposit of $380 uh, due tomorrow, October 24th. The remaining $350 is due the second week of December. Yoga, plant-based meals, we just talked about that yesterday with Dr. Lathan. Counter-racist workshops and meal workshops, five days, four nights, starting the new year in a constructive, counter-racist manner. Eat well, use logic. Try to say that frequently. Drop an email if you have questions, need more details. It is on the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. That's it. Our broadcast for today, uh, I included uh, the verbiage of Minister Malcolm uh, deliberately. I thought that was very important. Uh, We heard the segment before Minister Malcolm spoke uh, from St. Louis Public Radio, and they were discussing the treatment of black people uh, before, during, and after uh, the public killing of Michael Brown Jr. in the summer of 2014 pause because we did just talk about epigenetics yesterday and we even had that segment from i think a week ago also on st louis public radio where they had the black father and he was talking about being in the st louis area and he went to the park and he had his son who was two years old talk about children being treated like adults and criminals he was two years old And he's learning to potty train and he took his son over to the bushes thinking it was the discreet location so that his son could go to the bathroom and thinking, oh, this is a victory because his little child said, oh, I need to I need to go potty. He's always getting better, like great. He's mastering this potty training thing. And instead of having that moment of euphoria with your child, uh, an enforcement officer, white man comes over and what are you doing? Exposing your genitals in the public, potential rapist, get that little, you know criminal, not two-year-old, get that criminal out of the bushes, put his pants up, and cites him for indecent exposure, and then arrests uh, the mother as well when she, you know, has the audacity to say something about all of this. Almost went there, but we were talking about epigenetics uh, and how incidents of trauma can impact how your genes are expressed. We talked about with that incident, like, now, wow, what impact does that have on bowel movements, your stomach? the rest of his potty training experience, you try to go to the bathroom and your parents end up having a gun pulled on them by an enforcement official and one of them ends up being arrested. What kind of impact does that have on you long term as a child? Excuse the uh, side note. So back to our introduction for today. And you heard black mother talking about her child. I remember that. I remember watching that on television. In fact, I remember playing the report on the compensatory call-in that they canceled school for the first week because they had exactly what she said. They had the protests and tear gas in the street and tanks and all the rest of it. And so they canceled school uh, and children were having nightmares and all that. Same thing. What type of epigenetic impact does that have? Experiencing all that in your childhood. And this is the result of a black child being killed. How does that impact your experience, even if you're not in Ferguson Direct, even Missouri Direct, if you're just watching that on television? What sort of impact does that have? Anyway, all of that to say, 
that segment with Minister Malcolm X, he said, you have citizens or slaves. The St. Louis Public Radio segment, they said you have citizens and you have people who are treated like subjects. That is getting better, but I don't think that's the best S word. Words are extremely important in trying to figure out what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, and why some of these things, like Michael Brown Jr.'s murder, why some of these things continue to happen. Clear uh, clear backpacks and all. Why these type of things continue to happen. Our guest for today's program, uh, his book, about some of these things and why some of these happen, uh, why some of these things happen, and in particular, uh, looking at policy, planning, how neighborhoods, cities, counties are zoned, planned, how school districts are formed, planned, changed, all of that, a huge impact on how things up, why things end up looking the way that they do, even why Michael Brown Jr. was killed in 2014, just looking at the history of development in the surrounding St. Louis area, particularly with regards to white supremacy racism, can tell you a lot. Uh, We will be discussing uh, his book, and hopefully he will allow me to ask uh, one question uh, about a very interesting class he teaches. It's called uh, History of American Inequality. We'll see if we can check that out as well. But the book we will chat about today, Citizen Brown, Race, Democracy, and Inequality in the St. Louis Suburbs, uh, recently published about much of the themes that I just discussed. Uh, he additionally writes on the history of American public policy and political economy. Uh, he is a history professor at the University of Iowa. Pleasure to have him on the program. Joining us live, Professor Colin Gordon. Professor Gordon, are you with us, sir? I'm here. Yes, sir. We can hear you. Glad to join you. Oh, Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, I'm sure for some of our listeners, uh, this is their first time uh, hearing from you. Uh, For folks who've not seen a picture of you, uh, you are a white man. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Uh, And I guess any information, like a quick tidbit that you would like to share just about who you are, the work that you do at the University of Iowa? Yeah, I teach uh, history at the University of Iowa. My uh, recent research interests over the last really 15, 20 years have been tracing the the origins and the consequences of racial segregation in American cities, particularly St. Louis. So uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Mapping Decline about the long history of uh, racial segregation in St. Louis that went from racial zoning to restrictive deed covenants to ex- you know, exclusive zoning, all these different mechanisms. Uh, and then uh, in the aftermath, uh, after that book was published, there were a couple of events in St. Louis, the Kirkwood shootings in 2008 and the death of Michael Brown in 2014 that drew my attention to the same dynamics in the St. Louis suburbs. Right on. We will get to uh, some of the details in your book uh, as we go and see what that reveals about the system of racism. Uh, I start uh, every program with our guests. Uh, I use the term uh, racism 
uh, and the term white supremacy, I use them as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, I think, uh, um, I mean, it's an accurate definition. It's a very broad definition. And I think, you know, what I'm most interested in, rather, is um, the different ways in which that system exists, the different mechanisms, the different policies, uh, the different assumptions uh, that we see uh, in different national settings or even in different cities, uh, different states within uh, a given nation. Local uh, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she was a guest on our broadcast many times. Uh, she would frequently say local, national, global system of racism, white supremacy. I think a, a lens one can think about as we examine Citizen Brown uh, as this is local racism, white supremacy. However, big asterisk because the Federal Housing Administration does play a substantial role. Uh, it is mentioned quite a bit. So local, national system of racism, white supremacy. Globally, we're dealing with the same problem. Uh, I did say I was hoping to ask about uh, your class. Uh, it's history, 32, 32 at the University of Iowa, history of American inequality. Uh, what, what exactly do you teach in that class? Uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty broad approach to inequality. So uh, I teach both sort of basic economic inequality, the you know, the rise of the 1% and the, um, the growing gap between uh, those at the bottom of in income distribution and the top. But I also look at, uh, you know, forms of inequality based on uh, identity, uh, so uh, gender inequality, racial inequality, um, and all of the different uh, forms that that can take. It could be in you know, an inequality in your uh, in your wages. It could be an inequality in your family income. It could be an inequality in wealth, which is very much uh, sort of implicated um, by uh, housing inequality. Um, so it is a history class, but I start as I do with in a lot of my teaching with with a current pressing problem, and then try and trace its roots. Hmm. Okay. Is uh, I, I didn't see a link when I was looking on your. Uh, a page at the University of Iowa. Is there like a syllabus to see like the literature that's that's required to read in that course, or what you all talk about? Um, there's no, there's not a public version. Iowa University of Iowa uses a a course management system that only enrolled students can get into. I see. I see. I would like to see. Actually, fairly common now. Yeah, but that's a good idea. I can certainly post the syllabus on my own website. Okay. Yeah, I would. If you could, I would love to to check that out. I would say, uh, and I think this is one component that's important, and I'll say why. Uh, and it's, it comes up in your book, man. I use the word obfuscation for people paying attention to words uh, that listen to this broadcast. I use the word obfuscation on a regular basis as a core component of how white supremacy racism op uh, operates. 
obfuscating. Uh, I couldn't use a simple one and just say that they lie, but I feel obfuscate really gets to it because sometimes it's lying by concealing information, by making things deliberately convoluted, deliberately confusing, and then lo and behold, it pops up in Citizen Brown. Uh, you write, uh, as redevelopment progressed, this is uh, urban renewal programs, we'll give some of the details as we proceed, but as redevelopment progressed, it continually ran up against formal and informal institutions of discrimination and segregation. It was not easy, as the Olivet LCRA admitted in 1963 to come up with a relocation plan that will meet the federal requirements while simultaneously considering local conditions. Those working with displaced families underscored the problem. Even our experience in the frustrations of community relations work, staff of the American Friends Service Committee concluded in 1967, this is a big quote here, did not fully prepare AFSC staff workers for the webs of obfuscation that have been encountered by them and by home seekers with whom they have worked in attempts to secure housing. Prospective buyers have found salesmen who are not authorized to sell unsold homes that are not for sale, prices that suddenly rise, GI certificates and sale contracts that get lost, routine business transactions that spin into months of delay, credit companies that find unpaid bills that were never incurred, and questionable expressions of concern by builders and sales agents that their clients not move into a neighborhood where they wouldn't be happy. And I thought that was such a great passage and it included one of my key words, obfuscate. I feel this is important for so many reasons and such an important task and even related to the course that you teach, the history of American inequality, because I feel one of the ways the obfuscation operates is that I didn't read in your book and I haven't seen it yet. The evidence of this sort of thing happening, all of these efforts on a mass scale in St. Louis and across the country to keep out anybody else. In fact, James Lowen, I chuckled because James Lowen has a very similar passage in his book, Sundown Towns. And he said the same thing, that this is aggressively so against black people, not so against any other group. And I feel like part of the obfuscation when inequality or oppression, we're talking about white supremacy and then people add uh, LGBTQ, poor white people, white women, anything else really, disability, when they add that as though that is comparable or somehow equivalent or even maybe analogous to racism, white supremacy, I feel that's one of the major ways of obfuscation. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I love that. Uh, passage that you quoted from, which is why I included it in the book, because I think it captures a lot. I mean, the obfuscation there is, you know, it's it's multidimensional because here you have this local authority, which is basically clearing an African American community of that we had been there for generations, and they're obfuscating what they're doing to the residents of that community, who are entitled under federal law to relocation assistance. They're entitled to move back into the neighborhood when it's redeveloped. Um, all of these things are um, sort of uh, thrown to the wind. But they're also obfuscating what they're doing to the federal government. They're saying, uh, you know, oh, we found these people a place to live when often they did not much more than uh, give them a page of classified ads or give them an application for public housing in downtown St. Louis. 
I appreciate that. But in relation to when you were talking about the your course, the history of American inequality, uh, do you yeah. have is there any history in the St. Louis area or beyond of that, what you just described in terms of deliberate efforts uh, to keep black people from having quality housing, quality education, free to be unharassed from enforcement officials? Uh, is there any sort of evidence of this sort of thing happening on a wide scale systematic measure to gay white people, white women, disabled white people, old white people, any other groups? Other than non-white people, in oh. particular, black people. No, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we see discrimination based on all sorts of descriptive characteristics, but the uh, housing discrimination faced by African Americans, you know, across the last in the urban North, you know, which is my area of expertise, across 150 years. Is, is unparalleled in its sort of syst- in the systematic nature of its approach, in the way in, in the way in which it uh, you know reshapes the demographic distribution of entire cities uh, in ways that you know that fundamentally shape not only the fortunes and the opportunities of those who are discriminated against, but you know I would argue. Um, went a long way to uh, destroying the um, the fate of those the, the cities themselves. Uh, you know, housing uh, discrimination against African Americans is an enormously uh, destructive influence. Absolutely, absolutely. That uh, is important. I would ask folks to keep that in mind when that comparison is made, uh, particularly when white people make that comparison. I generally think that is a deliberate act of racism. Uh, Before we get to uh, your book, Citizen Brown, uh, one other quick question. Uh, I've been asking our our white guests this uh, question for some time. Uh, There was a non-white author. He had a piece uh, published in a major uh, article sometime back, and he had a sentence uh, in in his report, he said that <clears throat> many white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And I looked at the first portion uh, of his sentence uh, that many white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. And I said, I'm going to ask white people, uh, just based on your experience as a white man, you've been around white people, you study racism, white supremacy. Uh, Do you think that that is a true statement based on your research, your life experience, that a substantial number of whites are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism? Do you think that's true? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a difficult question for me to answer. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have the expertise to answer that question. I mean, I do think that, you know, it does um, identify, you know, what Ibran Zendi's new book identifies, that is the distinction between, you know, being what I think many people would just consider themselves a person of good conscience, a person of, of um, you know, it does not bear uh, ill will to others, and being explicitly anti-racist and actively anti-racist. So those are two very different things. One example that I draw out in my own research um, with regard to these, you know, fragmented metropolitan and uh, school district boundaries 
uh, in outside of St. Louis is the example of a contemporary white parent who may feel that they that they hold no particular racial bias or animus, but nevertheless will without fail say, I bought a house here because the schools are good, without uh, interrogating the full meaning of that statement. Because it's really, you know, fundamentally, that act is uh, both an exercise of white privilege and a, an extension um, and, and cementing of white privilege. Wow. Uh, I guess I'll make a couple uh, requests. Uh, the first one is super important. Uh, this is the context of white supremacy. Uh, I do not use the word white privilege uh, on this program because I think that's another method of obfuscating. Uh, what you write about in your book is not privilege. Uh, the ability to go in and rewrite school districts and decide uh, zoning and decide who's going to move and when they're going to move and have plans to carry this out over years. That is not privilege. That is power. I just, words. No, are I've, I've hang on a second. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Allow, yep. I'll let you speak. Uh, I, as I said, privilege is greatly minimizing what we're talking about. Uh, what happened to Michael Brown Jr., uh, the case of Mr. Thornton and Kirkwood that we're going to talk about. None of that is about privilege. And in my view, it's not an accurate term. So I do request that anyone who participates in this broadcast not use the word white privilege. Uh, so I will request that you not use that term on the broadcast. Uh, the second part, uh, I have found frequently when speaking to white people, they are frequently not honest. Obfuscate that word again. Obfuscate. They are not honest in talking to non-white people uh, on topics of white supremacy, racism. So I will request if you can be as honest as possible. And sometimes this is manifest in not answering questions. Uh, I found it fascinating. The most fascinating part of your response was at the beginning. You said that you don't know if you have the expertise to respond to this question. <laughs> I thought, wow, you said you are a white man. Is that correct, Professor Gordon? That's correct. Okay. And you study, you say discrimination, in my view, it's racism, white supremacy. You've written a whole book where you have the chalk outline of Michael Brown Jr. on the cover, and you're talking about racism. You have white family members. I presume you've been around white people. You study these issues. Why would you not have some lived experience to comment in a competent manner on a question about whether or not white people are sincerely pained about racism. Why would you not have some expertise to comment on that? I'm merely trying to make a distinction between my area of academic expertise, what I'm trained in in the area of do research, and what I would say based merely on my observations of living in this world. Hmm. I see those as two different things. Okay, but, but I'm, the other a fierce, I'm, I'm a fierce believer that academics claiming expertise should stay in their lanes mm -hmm. and they should speak about that which they know. And so I'm not prepared to speculate on an academic field in which sociologists and psychologists and others uh, are uh, trained uh, to draw pertinent conclusions. Hmm. Is it is it acceptable for me to ask how old you are, Professor Gordon? Yeah, I'm 57 years old. 57. OK. Uh, 
know. As a, as a white man who's been on the planet for nearly six decades, you have quite a bit of lived uh, and scholarly experience, I would think. Uh, on such a subject matter, but I won't, I, I'm still not sure if I got an answer to the question. That is one thing that I would appreciate if you could answer uh, the question uh, to whether or not you think white people are sincerely or greatly pained about racism. Do you think that's true or, or not? Like a substantial number of white people, just based on your experience, white people that you know, your studies. I, I don't, uh, I mean, I don't think I buy the premise of the question that I'm in a position to generalize about what all or some or most uh, people feel. It's not an object uh, in which I uh, have any academic expertise. Okay. That's, that's your response. I'll take that. That is suspicious. I said that's fascinating, but all righty. Citizen Brown, your book on operations, in my view, racism, white supremacy, uh, locally, asterisk nationally uh, in the St. Louis, <clears throat> Missouri area, you have the chalk outline, unless I'm looking at this incorrectly, the, the chalk outline from 2014 where Michael Brown Jr., uh, after he was shot and killed, uh, where he was uh, in the street and it's got kind of a is that kind of an overlay of the American flag. Is that, am I describing it correctly? Well, the, the flag is actually on the street. On the street. Okay. 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 And yeah, that, and that's where, the, where Michael Brown was shot. Got it. Okay. But that's the, the, uh, the chalk outline of where he, his body. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Why, why is that on the cover of the book for citizen Brown? Why that photo in particular? Yes, sir. Why that, why that artwork? Yes, sir. Uh, that photograph, which is taken by a Reuters, uh, news photographer, um, captures, I think, what is one of the central arguments of, of the book. Uh, I use the tattered American flag in that context um, as a marker for uh, the way in which African-American citizenship has been so systematically compromised uh, in the St. Louis suburbs. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then you start the book uh, with the and I guess, or I didn't know, I'll speak for myself. I didn't know anything about, you mentioned the shooting uh, in Kirkwood, uh, with Mr. Uh, Cookie mm -hmm. Thornton. I feel like I, I don't live in Missouri. I think people that listen to this program know I'm in Washington state, but so I'm not in all of these areas driving around like, oh, I know where that is. No, that not at all. Uh, but I had never heard of Cookie Thornton. I suspect a lot of uh, listeners have not either. Uh, can, I guess we start with who is Cookie Thornton and what happened in Kirkwood? So uh, Cookie Thornton was an uh, African-American contractor who lived in Meacham Park, Missouri, which is a small unincorporated pocket uh, next to Kirkwood, Missouri. Meacham Park was notoriously uh, neglected by St. Louis County and by the city of Kirkwood. Uh, so Meacham Park was there long before the sort of conventional white suburbs uh, came out into that part of the county. But when they did, they broke around Meacham Park like it was a rock and a stream. They didn't extend sewer lines into Meacham Park. They didn't extend paved roads into Meacham Park. They just went right around it and left it behind. So for almost 40 years, there was a constant on-again, off-again debate uh, about uh, 
bringing Meacham Park, annexing Meacham Park into the city of Kirkwood. But the tone of that debate was irretrievably racist because what the city of Kirkwood wanted, and they said this quite explicitly, was they didn't want to take on the problems of Meacham Park, which was 99% African-American, except that they would like to extend their policing into Meacham Park. And of course, the residents of Meacham Park said almost exactly the opposite. That is, we would like modern services, we would like the sewer mains extended in Meacham Park, we would like to be served and respected as full citizens of this community, but we don't want just the heavy hand of the law to be all that we get. So eventually, uh, Meacham Park and Kirkwood got together and they agreed on an annexation in 1990. And what Meacham Park or what Kirkwood turned around and did was they immediately filed a plan to raise about a third of Meacham Park and build a shopping mall. And so residents of Meacham Park, like Cookie Thornton, who thought and hoped that the annexation would mean that he would get more business in the Kirkwood area, uh, would mean that he might even get a slice of this redevelopment. Instead, what happened uh, to Cookie Thornton was he just felt the heavy hand of the new Kirkwood government, which came into Meacham Park and started fining him for stacking drywall in his driveway, for parking his truck on the street, sort of adding up all these petty municipal code violations that were uh, city of Kirkwood municipal code, but hadn't been, of course, in Meacham Park before it was annexed. Kirkwood ended up fining Cookie Thornton uh, well over $100,000 in these, you know, sort of $35, $40 at a time. Um, he became a sort of chronic antagonist to the city at city council meetings. And finally, in uh, 2008, came to a city council meeting um, and walked in holding a gun uh, behind a poster and shot and killed uh, four of the city council members and the mayor, uh, after which he was shot. Now, the in the aftermath, some residents of Meacham Park expressed, you know, regret for the violence, but also underscored that it was understandable, given the history of sort of deep uh, uh, racism between the two communities, that something like this was going to happen. And that it was, you know, many in community meetings in the aftermath um, said, in effect, you know, what are the central themes of my book? That is, we are not treated like citizens of this community. We are treated like subjects. We are treated like targets of the law uh, and not beneficiaries in any way of state action. The Justice Department sent in a conciliation expert to try and sort of uh, mend relationship with the two communities, uh, and that person left with their tail between their legs a year later. Uh, and, uh, you know, the lingering uh, resentments on both sides uh, continue to this day context of white supremacy i will say that i frequently uh encourage listeners uh if you uh, if you live in missouri uh that studying local history i had never heard of cookie thornton before if you live in missouri 
that should not be your response to who is Cookie Thornton, that I've never heard of, you know, of this person. Like, really take the time to go do some studying, do some digging. You would be amazed. And, I mean, you can get a Ph.D. in white supremacy racism because I don't care what state you live in. Oh, yeah, they will have a treasure trough uh, of white supremacist activity uh, in all areas of people activity. So study if you have offspring, study, try to get as much information as possible, uh, learning about where you live. Uh, As I said, I had not really heard about this incident. Did did this incident get a lot of national attention in the same way as the Michael Brown uh, Jr. shooting? Uh, No. And, and, you know, partly because. What, you know, what followed was, I think, a little bit more muted um, in terms of the social protest. It was dampened down a little bit by the Justice Department. And, you know, when in the end, you know, the Justice Department um, didn't didn't really have that much to say about what they thought the conditions on the ground were uh, in the way for not in the way, for example, that the Department of Justice did after Mike Brown's death, you know, deliver a pretty scathing indictment of predatory and racist policing in Ferguson. And but I do think that the uh, the, the uh, tragedy, the Kirkwood shootings and the death of Michael Brown are, uh, you know, on the same side of the coin. Uh, both Michael Brown and Cookie Thornton um, were mistreated in the same way uh, by uh, by their local governments. Mm. In a variety of all areas of people activity. And that's so important with Mr. Thornton, uh, because uh, this is black business. We do have workplace racism. Uh, She said he's thinking, hey, maybe I'll get some of the contracts with this redevelopment. And no, that doesn't happen either. Um, uh, Do you have uh, some. I don't know. Do you have some sort of uh, background with like uh, English uh, or let's see fiction writing english do you have any sort of uh background there no not really okay you uh use a lot of uh metaphors and very uh descriptive analogies both in your writing and in your uh verbal communication like just when as you were giving that response just now uh when you were talking about Meacham and you said they split around it like a rock in the stream uh and the federal agent that he left with his uh tail between his legs uh when he left after the Cookie Thornton uh shooting just I encourage listeners regularly to pay attention to metaphors pay attention to words uh in particular uh one of the words that I noted in your book uh oh man I, one I'm appreciative. Thank you so much to Professor Gordon for sharing a copy of his book so I could prep for the program. Uh, it was uh, it was peculiar. I was reading it on Adobe Digital, which I don't normally use for ebooks. I guess I'm spoiled using uh, Kindle and uh, iBooks. And it has like the cool features where you can do a word count and that sort of thing, which makes it really if you're into words and just, you know, seeing, well, what's the word usage for this particular term in a book, you can do cool things like that. And it doesn't seem like Adobe has those cool features. I would have loved to see how many times the word quarantine was used in your book, Citizen Brown. Why did you use the term uh, quarantine so frequently in describing what was happening in the St. Louis area? And it was, I mean, as I looked at the pattern of municipal incorporation and annexation that uh, left behind communities like Meacham Park. 
the it was really the sort of best term that I could use because it wasn't just a matter of not extending services and not including uh, some people as part of the newly created community, but it was actively barring uh, those those citizens off from full citizenship. So when the surrounding communities, when these surrounding subdivisions surround Meacham Park and eventually uh, leave it as this little pocket of unincorporated land, it's not just that the sewer lines don't go through and the streets don't go through and the water lines don't go through, but the surrounding communities in the area right next to Meacham Park zone that land industrial so that they create a buffer between their residential districts and those of Meacham Park. And that to me struck me, you know, as more powerful than than simple exclusion, that it was actually a sort of act of, of quarantine. Uh, uh, number one, you just said more powerful. You didn't say more privileged. And that's that's the exact point that I make, that no aspect of, you know, any area of people activity, whether we're talking about Ferguson or beyond, this is not privilege. That greatly uh, obfuscates, minimizes uh, what we are talking about, which is white supremacy, terrorism, uh, power, power to abuse and terrorize people. Uh, I looked at the definition for the term quarantine, particularly in comparison, uh, paired with what you just said, but the definition for quarantine, a state period or place of isolation in which people or animals that have arrived from elsewhere or been exposed to infectious or contagious disease are placed and the sentence they give many animals die in quarantine. I thought that was so important. Even if you go down to the second uh, definition as a verb, they still include animals. I thought that was so important. But there is with the word quarantine, that is a medical term, as I understand it, uh, with the word quarantine, that implies that it's not just that we're isolating these people or, you know, storing them, warehousing them. It implies that there's something wrong, that these people might actually have some sort of disease or contagion that we are doing this really for the greater good. Uh, because if they get out, you know, oh, my goodness, this could infect the rest of us. Right. Doesn't that have the connotation with the word quarantine? Yeah. And that's I mean, another that's another sense in which I mean, it. I mean, the so I do a lot of work with uh, um, in my previous work and some current work looking at race restrictive meat covenants and the language that they use. And what's interesting, and this runs through both of my books on St. Louis, is the way in which African-American occupancy of residential properties is treated, you know, by white citizens, by developers, by the law as a form of blight, as a form of disease. That's something to be eradicated. And so in the race restrictive deed covenants in St. Louis, there's typically two clauses. And, and these are restrictions that might be on an entire subdivision or just on one side of the street. They can be of any kind of scale. But the two clauses are you cannot in your property have a junk shop, a white lead factory, a candle factory, you know, anything, anything that is going to like be a nuisance in the neighborhood. A slaughterhouse is another restriction. And then the second clause is you shall not allow your house, sell your house or allow it to be occupied by a Negro or Negroes equating 
quite directly in such a document, African-American occupancy of a residence with uh, a nuisance or noxious use of the same place. A slaughterhouse, animals, uh, once again. I, I appreciate all of those details. And I mean, that's so common. I think that detail is important, which is why I thought his board, uh, book, Citizen Brown, was important when I saw it because when we have language that minimizes white supremacy, racism, like white privilege, uh, and or language that suggests that white people are ignorant about racism. Now, if it's in the covenant, and this is not just the St. Louis thing because they have detailed maps and we've had guests on the program, uh, Washington state where I am, uh, North Carolina, which is three time zones away, uh, all over the land, James Lawrence's book, all over the land. <laughs> They've got this sort of thing. Sometimes it's no niggers. Sometimes it's no niggers. Sometimes it's no colored people, but aggressively no black people. Sometimes it might not be in the covenant, but it's understood you had, even if it's Nat King Cole, you had better not allow that black person here, if that's the case, and that's been the case for generations, you can't exactly then come back and say that white people are ignorant about racism, white supremacy. They are not. You cannot be ignorant if it's in the covenant, like, hey, be very clear. We practice white supremacy, racism, no Negroes here. Uh, just, I think that's so important because that's so common in the way that we talk about white supremacy, racism, that this is an accident or this is happenstance, this is chance, or we don't know how this happened. And I think it's very important. This is designed. This is not, this is in the, we had plans that it was supposed to be this way years, decades ago. Uh, am I being inaccurate, uh, Professor Gordon? No, no, I think uh, I would say exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, absolutely uh, systematic. Context of white supremacy, our list, particularly our listeners in the uh, Missouri area. If you all have questions for Professor Gordon, you should dial in. Ask away. Uh, we've been talking about his book, Citizen Brown. The number is six zero five three one three five one six. Four, the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you have a question uh, I will I'll get in two and then I'll get our listeners uh, I guess first question I thought again this was so important uh, and words the use of words that's why I harp on that all the time words are critical uh, so you're right. This is page 82. Uh, let's see. Federal policy now gave local government broad discretion. That is another key word I use all the time on this program. Discretion. You should be aware anytime discretion. If that comes up as a part of school policy, if that comes up as a part of legal policy on your job discretion that basically means broad latitude to practice racism you don't have to do the same thing every time you can use your imagination broad latitude to practice racism that's what you should think when the word discretion comes up as a part of policy uh, but federal policy now gave local uh, local government broad discretion in both identifying blighted neighborhoods and determining the public purpose served by their redevelopment both concepts proved remarkably elastic, purposely so. A blighted property originally envisioned as a tenement breeding vice and disease, whew, quarantine, could now be a Tony shopping mall lacking a Nordstrom's. 
and any efforts to eradicate blight could now be considered a public purpose, a concept that under the urban renewal program slipped from meaning actual public use to the more nebulous public benefit. Just that little shift from public use. Now we're out at public benefit, which gives even more discretion to gobble up black property and boot them anywhere but here and do what we want with this property. Can you uh, talk about, because this comes up repeatedly uh, in your book, Discretion to Change School Districts, Discretion to Change Zoning. Can you talk about this repeatedly and how it's every time, always, no exception to the detriment of black residents? Yeah, and I, I mean, those are those are good examples that you chose. I mean, on the urban renewal front, uh, you know, the discretion is, uh, you know, especially damaging in the middle years of the last century because the federal government was giving these local authorities millions and billions of dollars to exercise this discretion. You know, they, there was no realistic federal oversight. And so they basically allowed, uh, you know, the people who were responsible for racist real estate institutions at the local level in the first place to make the decision with the federal money and the federal money went to buying up the land um, that was deemed blighted. In St. Louis County, the, their uh, land development authority met for the first time in 1957, I have the minutes of this meeting, to decide now that they could you know, have access to this federal money, what are we gonna redevelop? And they identified seven locations in St. Louis County that they thought were ripe for redevelopment. And those were the seven pockets of African-American occupancy in the county. One of which was Meacham Park. The other area I think in which you see, you know, this discretion starkly on display uh, is in policing. So I'm working right now on a uh, class action uh, suit brought by um, a St. Louis law firm on behalf of people who were caught up in Ferguson's predatory policing. And in the course of that case, uh, we got access to, um, in discovery, to the emails uh, of the, the Ferguson city government. And what's remarkable there, and this goes to your point about discretion, is we know that the police were going out and actively identifying particularly young black men for this predatory state action, for, for finding them for, you know, doing not much more than, you know, having one foot off the sidewalk kind of thing. And the reason these municipalities were doing this was part out of uh, sort of rank racism, but also partly because they had no other source, no other stable sources of revenue because property values were falling and sales taxes were falling, et cetera. But when white citizens were caught up in this web, you know, red light cameras and that sort of thing, all they had to do was email City Hall and say, hey, I got a ticket. Can you make it go away? Gone. And so the discretion in this sort of predatory policing to decide who gets targeted in the first place and who, when they got caught up in the web, has to pay the fine, it's, you know, it's really quite clear uh, what sort of assumptions uh, are at work. 
What man? I re- I read the DOJ report. Uh, it keeps getting referenced that uh, report that was on St. Louis Public Radio, where the black father was with his child, and they ended up arresting his child, or arresting the the parent, indecent exposure and all that. Uh, they referenced the DOJ report because they said the white officer, arresting officer, that he was mentioned or referenced specifically in the DOJ report on three different occasions, where he had a long history of terrorizing black citizens in uh, Missouri citizens, uh, but. <clears throat> I remember about the emails and whites being, I think Mary Ann Twitty, she was the court clerk. I might be, she was the court clerk. Oh yeah, Miss Twitty. Can you, you know, hook that up? I was going a little too fast and she would take care of the ticket. And then also it was the racist emails. That was a part of it. She was making racist jokes about president. That's another one. I point that out and say, you can't be ignorant about racism. If you're sending racist jokes about the president is a coon and a nigger and an ape and all the rest of it. And then you fix the white people's ticket and then aggressively target the black people who is ignorant about racism. Nobody in St. Louis. Uh, Do you remember the, the racist jokes part of that as well that was with the uh with yeah, yeah. okay from <laughs> that as well you are a white person uh, i guess this would be a, a moment of honesty have you ever been around any whites who were telling racist jokes about black people non-white people uh i'm sure i have i can't think of any particular instances oh that is so common. Uh, we have had so many whites on the program and we'll ask them, have you heard a uh, racist joke? And we literally like literally Professor Gordon, I've had a white person on this program who said, oh, yeah, I've heard a thousand racist jokes. They were older, like uh, over 55. Uh, I said, oh, yeah, I've heard over a thousand racist jokes. <laughs> People told them all the time when I was growing up, blah, 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 but I can't remember. That is almost verbatim, like 90. It is very, very rare. I can think of maybe one white guest that we've had on the program who said, oh, yeah, I've heard some racist jokes. And this is one I remember. Boop, they could check. That's one of the times we talk about obfuscating and white people not being honest when talking about racism. I feel racist jokes. That is one of the few times they are being honest in their views on black people, non-white people. I implore non-white people, if you want to study racism, Unpack, study, rate. Look at Marianne Twitty. Go back and see the email she was sending about black people and President Obama. That right there will give you a lot of information about what white people think about black people, what it means to be classified as white. Can you be a white person and be ignorant about racism? Uh, let's see. Person that dialed. Uh, let's see. Person that dialed in. Oh, this is Thomas in New York. Thomas and you. Oh, wait a minute. We'll get, uh, since we have people out, global system of white supremacy racism. B in Toronto. Uh, you should be with us. B in Toronto, did you have a question for Professor Colin Gordon? Yes, Gus. Um, thank you so much. And um, thank you, uh, Professor Gordon, uh, for also uh, being on the show. Uh, I do have a question for you. I am calling from Canada. Um, and much of the um, much of the uh, laws um, depriving um, black citizens of uh, housing uh, and and other necessities of life um, in Canada here has been largely influenced by by the American uh, government. Uh, so I have this question for you. I noticed in chapter four. It's entitled Arresting Citizenship, Segregation, Austerity, and Predatory Policing. 
and you've just mentioned that for the policing, the predatory policing in part was due to um, uh, lowered rates uh, or lowered funding coming into the city. Uh, mm-hmm. So they were um, focusing on young uh, black males uh, for profit. So, and I like to look at patterns here. Would you consider your book um, a predatory reinterpretation of the black experience within white terrorism and power? And would you uh, foresee it as uh, being for profit as well on the black experience? Sorry, you mean my book is profiting from the black experience? Mm Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, myself personally, am profiting from black experience. That's correct. I I don't receive uh, any revenues from the sale of this book. So who receives revenue from the from this book? Uh, as is typical in uh, academic publishing, particularly when the uh, production of the book is made more extensive by the inclusion of maps and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, My university actually paid the University of Chicago Press uh, what's called a subvention. Mm -hmm. And any proceeds from the sale of the book go to the University of Chicago Press. With the uh, white institution, correct? I am not in a position to characterize the University of Chicago Press. I see. Um, obfuscating once again. Thank you very much for for uh, allowing me to ask that question, Gus. I leave the line. Yes, ma'am. I'll ask a quick one before I get Thomas in New York. Uh, Professor Gordon, do you get any paid speaking engagements as a result of this book, Citizen Brown, or anticipate getting any paid speaking engagements for the book? Uh, I've had, uh, let's see, I think I've done five or six uh, speaking engagements so far. I think I was paid for two of them. Uh, I just did a large community meeting in St. Louis at my own expense. So it's sort of a wash. Most most typically, I'll just get my my travel expenses paid. Okay. Uh, Thomas, in New York, you should be with us, sir. Did you have a question? Good evening. Good evening to the guests. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Uh, being Toronto, um, man, I would say, Gus, it takes quite a bit of power, quite a few vases to keep people that they want to police from having sewer pipes and water pipes. You know. Uh, but um, questions Gus asked you: Were you deeply pained? Um, did you uh, about um, were white people deeply pained by racism? Um, and you said that you're not an expert and you couldn't answer that question. Um, are you deeply pained by racism, sir? Yes, that's why I do this research. Absolutely. Uh, would you say your parents were? Uh, no. Okay. Um, would you say your parents were racist? No. Okay. Um, have you ever practiced racism against a black person? Not to my knowledge. 
Have you ever witnessed another white person practice racism against a black person? Yes. Um, can you tell us what that was? Or one, at least one of the times? Uh, I'm trying to think of the most recent one. Uh, when I was in St. Louis on my last trip, which was only a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was an older white woman uh, yelling at a uh, parking lot attendant. Uh, and eventually uh, she used the N-word. It's just an example. Okay. Do you, have you ever experienced any, because you were in school, have you ever experienced any young white people practicing racism? You mean in the classes that I teach? On campus, in the classes, um, in your general um, partaking around the, the um, school district or grounds? Um, I would say I've not personally witnessed anything uh, in my own classes. I have secondhand knowledge of incidents in other people's classes. Because every every week I'm seeing it looks like more and more racism um, on college grounds and in high schools. And I just thought that um, you being a professor, you can give us a little bit of insight. But um, what what are some of the things that you hear going on in other people's classes? Uh, I mean, a wide variety of things. Uh, you know, some of it directed uh, against African Americans. Some of it on my campus directed against foreign students uh, more generally. Um, some of it directed against Latinx uh, um, students. What, what's been directed at African Americans? And that'll be my last question, though. Um, I had a colleague teaching a class on uh, social policy. Uh, and, you know, it was what I would characterize as a sort of, uh, you know, what's often called a microaggression where, you know, students, every, every time the topic of uh, social assistance or welfare came up, uh, my colleague noticed that students would turn and sort of look at the African-American students in the class, uh, not in a, necessarily in an accusing way, but in the assumption that they knew something about it uh, that the other students didn't. Interesting. Uh, star six one for other folks. If you have a question you would like to ask uh, Professor Colin Gordon, I will look out for folks as we proceed with the text. With given the financial arrangement of the book that you shared with uh, B in Toronto, who was your intended audience uh, for this for this text? Uh. Well, it's written, I mean, academic publishing, uh, sometimes the audience is quite specialized. So uh, you might write um, mostly for uh, other academics to try and, you know, convince them of your interpretation or reinterpretation of events. Some academic books, and I would include mine in this category, uh, aim for uh, a larger uh, public audience. So it's, you know, it's uh, not a long book. Uh, it's designed to be perhaps used in college courses. Um, 
I know it has a broader uh, community audience uh, in St. Louis and in Missouri itself. Um, so that's the audience I had in mind. And you're at the University of uh, University of Iowa. Uh, what what exactly drew your attention to St. Louis? Because you've written studied on this area quite a bit. What drew your attention to the area? You said was it the Kirkwood shooting in 2008? No, I because I, my that was when my first book on St. Louis came out. Mm-hmm. I, I first went to St. Louis in um, the early 2000s, and I was going to an academic conference on a completely different topic, only to discover when I got there that, I, that the conference was not in St. Louis. It was in uh, Clayton, Missouri, which uh, is outside the city, but... Uh, likes to sort of bill itself as St. Louis's downtown, because uh, that's where many of the office buildings are now. And I was sort of struck by this and thought uh, that I had some spare time at the conference and decided to walk into the city of St. Louis, uh, which is not very far. And by accident, I walked in along what locals call the Del Mar Divide, which is the hard dividing line between mostly white South St. Louis and overwhelmingly black North St. Louis. And it's a stark uh, uh, boundary of segregation where the housing stock on both sides of the streets is very similar, built at the same time, same size houses, that sort of thing. Um, But on one side of the street, those houses are worth $60,000. And on the other side, they're worth $360,000. On one side of the street, the schools are closing on another side of the street. They're opening up, you know, they're putting in charter schools. They're, they're lavishing resources. Um, and I was so struck by this contrast that I decided to, uh, in research it further. Hmm. Okay. That is fascinating. Uh, I think that pattern exists in other parts of the world uh, under the system of racism. I did uh, want to make sure that I added in, I think uh, the term uh, microaggression, because uh, you used that before, microaggression, uh, discrimination, white privilege, all of these are terms that I recommend uh, non-white people not using, really anybody who is serious, uh, sincere about replacing white supremacy with justice not use because uh, all of that is obfuscation. All of that is being very dishonest with terms uh, and minimizing uh, the criminality uh, of whites and how they terrorize and abuse black people. I just I go back. They called Bill Cosby a sexual terrorist. What we have described here today is terrorist systematic and I mean government sanctioned terrorism in every way. We had Beryl Satter on the program to talk about family property, her book in Chicago, where it's the exact same thing. And she has a chapter in her book, one of the early chapters, a noose around the neck of black Chicagoans. And I asked her directly when she was on the program, white woman, is this terrorism? Uh, What they were doing with housing is the exact same thing described in this book. And she said, absolutely, that's terrorism, economic terrorism. Absolutely. I'll ask you the same question. With what we've talked about here, oh, your area is blighted and equating because you said that in the book where invariably blighted becomes equated with Negro quarantine. Uh, is this terrorism? Is that an accurate labeling of what you describe in the book? Um, I think sometimes it's terrorism. Sometimes it isn't. I mean, 
which time would it not be? Which which times, which incidents from the book that you describe, whether it's school, policing, the housing, which which components would not be terrorism? I'm I'm you know, I like you, I am uh I take seriously the meaning of words. Mm-hmm. And that means that I'm reluctant to use as broad a term as terrorism to characterize every piece of this story. I do think, and I I take your point, and I think I agree with it, uh, that I would call it part of the system of white supremacy. I would certainly call it a pattern of racism. Much of that racism, as we know from uh, American history, is uh, backed by the threat of violence. And so in that sense, yes, it's terrorist in its uh, uh, implications. It's terrorist in its organization. It's terrorist in its approach. But I think that is uh, not the same as saying that all of this is terrorism. I, I understand all of that. And again, I go back to what I said, answering the questions, which components, if, if you're that certain, <laughs> no ambiguity, not all of this is terrorism. So which components do you think this component right here? I don't think this is terrorism. Maybe it's racism, but I don't think this is terrorism right here. I don't, uh, you know, as, as you know, from reading the book, I don't describe things in that way. I'm not, uh, my expertise does not lie in theorizing about broad social systems and attaching names to them. This book is a meticulous blow by blow account of the systems that lie behind systematic racism. My feeling is when you use a term like systematic racism, when you use a term like institutional racism, it's important to understand the systems and it's important to understand the institutions. And that's all I've tried to do. Well, systematic racism is not even used in the book. Uh, I don't like Adobe Digital Editions, but it at least can do that. Uh, That word is not even used in the book. And that was why I pointed out, because you do use terms like discrimination. You use the one of my uh, words that is high on my uh, list of uh, disregard. These should not be used. Race relations. Oh, man. like That is, I mean... Maybe you can't pick out a component of this that you don't think qualifies as terrorism. But I mean, talk about minimizing the term race relations, which is in the book uh, and used in a robust manner. That is not an accurate description for this or any component of white supremacy racism. I've said that for years. Uh, that makes it sound as though, you know, maybe you've got two neighbors that are having a quarrel about their fence or something or some semblance uh, of a balanced dispute or conflict. And that's not what this is at all. This is a total power imbalance, uh, white domination. That's what we're talking about, not race relations. Um, and, did not get an answer to the question. That is important. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, volunteered for some of our narration. Did you have a question for Professor Gordon? You should be with us. Yes, sir. Evening to the guests. Uh, my question is, under the global system of racism, white supremacy, uh, should 
non-white people who are victims of racism trust any white person when they speak on the global system of racism and white supremacy. Hello? I don't know how to respond to that. Are you saying that I'm dishonest, that I should not be trusted, that I should not have told this story? Uh, I'm saying in general, white people practice racism. Non-white people don't have a master list on who are the white people who are practicing racism. It is possible that you could be a practitioner of racism, white supremacy. So you can either state, well, no, they shouldn't or articulate on in some kind of way that uh, uh, as far as uh, giving me an answer to the question. Uh, under a system where the victims do not have the power to determine on who are the racists, should those victims trust any white person? That's not really for me to say. Should we trust you? I've written a book based on my research in St. Louis. You're welcome to read the book and agree with it or disagree with it. Like all academic work, the work is thoroughly documented in footnotes and endnotes. I think the proper way to go about this dialogue is to read the work and assess it for yourself. It's not a matter of trust. Did you have another question, retired firefighter, or did that, did he answer your question? Uh, he kind of like avoided the question more so than answer the question. Uh, when people are, with a subject matter such as, the, such as this one, uh, there, uh, there is a possibility that a person uh, like the guest uh, could be speaking on something uh, because he likes attention. And uh, certainly, uh, the guest uh, gets a lot of attention or gets attention enough to get employed, get compensation for what he says. Excuse, do, you and, have a, uh, do you have another question? Or No, I don't have another question because he really didn't answer it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's see. Henry previously mentioned Henry in Chicago. Did you have a question for Professor Gordon? You should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners and uh, greetings to Professor Gordon. Uh, it's uh, interesting, the uh, topic of obfuscation. Uh, one question, Professor Gordon, are you familiar with Attorney Alton Maddox? Sorry, say the name again. 
Uh, Alton Maddox. Are you familiar with him? No. Okay. He's a black lawyer in New York. One of the things that he had mentioned or said about how white people practice racism, they use four elements. They use violence, they use money, they use, uh, and they use the law. I'm, I'm sorry, that's three elements. But you tend to use the word, I haven't read your book, but you tend to use the word policy a lot. And, you know, just like what Gus was saying about privilege, you know, I think, you know, for me, I've noticed law being a more powerful weapon than policy. Uh, can you can you explain, you know, that? Am I wrong about that? Or is it something that uh, that is uh, also a word that is being obfuscated or what white people are actually doing? Uh, I think, uh, as I use them, the words have, have different meanings. But in, in terms of the way in which you frame the question, they probably have the same implication. I mean, the law can be understand as the sort of, uh, you know, the set of rules uh, that we operate under, like the constitution uh, of, a, of a state. Policy is, you know, in my line of work, generally understood as the way in which those laws are put into action. So you may have in your constitution uh, a law that says that the state of Iowa or Illinois or Minnesota is responsible for the general welfare. And that then is enacted by policies which might distribute housing assistance or that sort of thing. And so to me, law and policy mean different things. Policy, in effect, is the law in action. Well, when enforcement officials are used, isn't that considered law? Yeah. So I, what I'm talking about, when I'm talking about policy, I'm generally talking about things like, uh, you know, the drawing of municipal boundaries, the drawing of school district boundaries. Uh, you can have, with education, for example, you can have policy uh, that affects how schools are funded, or you can have policies within schools that affect how schools are disciplined. Um, law is also, in this kind of work, often used as shorthand for law enforcement. Uh, but that's not the, the meaning that I, uh, the way in which I use it. Um, I'm, I almost always use policing when I'm talking about law enforcement in order to make that distinction. And, and did I miss, did I miss, because you said something about you were also working on a, a class action case. Are you a lawyer? I am not. Okay. All right, because I think I think I thought I heard you earlier about you were working on the class action case, uh, I, I, but you're not working I, I, in as a, a law uh, in a lawyer capacity, right? No, I'm working as an expert witness. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, that's all I had, guys. Oh man, mm. expert witness, expert witness, man. Uh, let's see the caller at. Caller last four digits seven six five six seven six five six. Did you have a question for Professor Gordon? Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. I hope mm-hmm. everyone's having the best evening they can have. Nope. Um, Professor Gordon, hope, again, hope you're having the best evening you can have. 
Um, you, I have a couple of questions. You stated that you were not able to um, define terrorism in your book. Um, I think, well, I'm going to just go by a general definition. I think something, I don't know if we all agree with it, but I'll go with Merriam-Webster. I think that's a pretty objective standard. Do you agree? So I keep going. Sorry, the connection's not good. I didn't. I didn't hear what you said. There is some distortion in your line. Like I don't. I'm not sure. It's. Uh, I don't know if you're on a headset or speakerphone. Hello. Can you make that sound better? No, it's still a little bit of distortion. Not, if you want to hang up and call back in, I can get okay. you immediately. I'll okay. do that. All righty. Uh, well, while she's doing that, the caller at three zero nine eight three zero nine eight. Did you have a question for Professor Gordon? I do. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, listeners, participants. Good evening, Professor Gordon. Uh, Professor Gordon, um, let me ask you, what is, by writing this book, what do you think, what do you expect the constructive effect that you hope to achieve with this, other than just writing about the academic effects of it? I'll ask that first. That's one question. Uh, I mean, as as any scholar uh, writing about an issue of uh, current importance, uh, one hopes that their uh, research will uh, help to uh, shape the law and help to shape policy going forward. You know, what I try and do in this book is show how destructive uh, and how um, uh, fundamentally racist the, the local organization of government in the St. Louis region uh, has proven to be. And there are things that we can do about this in terms of, of um, making decisions at, at a different jurisdictional level of government, having much uh, stronger uh, uh, civil rights and equity uh, uh, standards uh, for the actions taken by local governments, for the way for the actions taken by local school boards, that sort of thing. All right, thank you. Um, I want to go back to um, Gus's question about who you think the primary audience would be. Um, you deferred on characterizing, I believe, the University of Chicago, but you you currently are tenured. Are you tenured at the University of Iowa? Yes. Okay. So would you characterize the University of Iowa as a predominantly white institution? Oh, yes. Okay. So in that characterization, would you extend the primary audience of your academics to be classified as white? Uh, not for this book. No, I don't teach this book on my own campus. Okay. Thank you. Um, and last, um, one last question. Who is most confused by and or about the system about of white supremacy racism, and I will meet my line. Thank you. I, I didn't understand that question. Um, you, um, I, I, you, um, pardon me. You um, heard Gus's definition of white supremacy racism, correct? Okay. Now, in that definition, 
who would you say would have the least amount of understanding of how that system works and Yes, who would have the most, uh, the least amount of understanding of how that system works? White people or black people? Or white people or non-white people? Again, I, I'm not sure that I have the expertise to answer that question. I think the, you know, both whites and non-whites have pretty powerful understandings of uh, the system in which they find themselves. Those understandings are different. But uh, nevertheless, I don't think it's a matter that uh, uh, one understands less of the system than another or more. Mm. Well, I mean, I would have to, I mean, I would have to parse what you mean by understand. I mean, is it true that uh, in the system of white supremacy that uh, some whites are able to uh, take it for granted, for example? That's not, I think, uh, necessarily a lack of understanding. Hmm. Interesting. Um... When I say, I guess, like, okay, let me see if I can define understanding. If I say understanding, if I, if I say to you that the system, the power, the, okay, the power, understanding the power dynamic, how that works, you, we, I think we can, would you agree? I don't think, I don't want to assume anything. Would you agree that there is an un, unequal power dynamic between whites and blacks? as the system of white supremacy as defined by Mr. Renegade. Sure, certainly, yeah. Now, if that is true, who would, who is most, who is, who is most ignorant of how this power dynamic is operating, whites or non-whites? Does that make it clearer? Uh, yeah, but I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. That's and why not? Why not? If I may, why not? Am I, I may ask, and that will be my last question, so I don't know how I'm along. Thank you. I mean, the, 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 it's not my area of research. I'm trying to stay in my lane and speak about what I know. If you want to understand, you know, how and why uh, people think of themselves and their position in a system of white supremacy, there are other scholars who uh, study this problem and have studied this problem, and I'm not one of them. All right. I'll see if our female caller was able to get back on the line. I did want to uh, just make sure I heard one uh, bit of information uh, when you were responding to our previous caller a few moments ago. And you said, you know, as a result of, of reading your book, uh, that one should be able to ascertain uh, that. Was it in St. Louis local government or which element of government is fundamentally racist uh, as it relates to what you talk about in your book? 
what I was alluding to there was the argument in the book that um, structuring government around this sort of these patchwork municipalities sustains and secures racism, okay. which is not to say that racism is absent in larger jurisdictions of government, but the smaller the smaller units of government make it possible for people to act in exclusionary and racist manner. It empowers them to do so, to draw school district boundaries, to practice exclusionary zoning. Got it. I just checked the same thing I've said all evening. Uh, I just checked uh, the word racist is only used in the actual text of your book twice. uh, And neither time is it in reference to government. So people would have to imply that uh, because that is not stated explicitly uh, and I am asserting strongly that that is one of the major problems. Going back to the obfuscation, we don't make it plain the crimes that white people commit and how they practice racism, white supremacy. It ends up being uh, very much pussyfooted, to use Minister Malcolm X's word. His voice was heard at the top of the broadcast. Uh, Let's see. Did our female call her? Let's see if we got her back without distortion. Let's try again, ma'am. Hello. Oh, sounding better this time. Let's try it. Okay. Thank you so much for allowing me to call back in. Professor Gordon, as I was stating, um, I think, I don't know, this word terror and terrorism, I don't know if you're confused about it because you can't seem to answer questions about it. So I just want to um, go to a source, Merriam-Webster. Do you think that's a good source to use to find the meaning of words before I continue? Sure. Okay. But it's something we all can have access to. We all can read it, you know, and get the information. So it says the definition of terror, there are several, but they all involve basically one says a state of, in- of intense or overwhelming fear, violence, or the threat of violence used as a weapon of intimidation or coercion, especially violent or destructive acts, such as a bombing, committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or a government into granting their demands, a very frightening or terrifying aspect. I don't know if that's a good definition. Um, and one, they call it informal and and extremely disruptive or annoying person or thing. Based on these definitions, can you explain in your book which, which um, experiences would not be terrorism? Because these are general definitions from Merriam-Webster. Well, I, I mean, I think I already uh, answered no, this you question. That's what I'm asking again. You didn't. <laughs> you said you could. I do not. I do not describe the events that unfold in my book as terrorism. I understand that, but would you consider them based on that? Based on the definition that I gave, was the acts be considered terrorism? I mean, threatening, saying you can't be part of the community unless we bring in police. I mean, that sounds like, based on what I just read, personally to me, again, I'm not an academic. I don't have a doctor's degree like you, you know. No, I'm, I'm, I, I, but I, I would give the same answer I gave earlier in that there are some elements and episodes in the book which meet your definition of Merriam-Webster's. This is not mine. Merriam-Webster. No, I'm, but I'm, I'm. We're agreeing on that definition. Okay. That is a reasonable definition. 
but based on this definition and knowing that no, you're not an expert in everything, but you're expert enough to write the book that we are, that people are relying on because you just said you are an expert witness. And I'm sure some of it is based on this book and this research that you have done. You're not able to do that. Is that what you're saying? No, I, I, I actually think we agree. I did not use the word terrorism in, in the book, but I, I agree just, well, that many of the elements of my argument, many of the episodes and circumstances I've described, which are blacked, backed by the explicit or implicit threat of violence, do meet that definition of terrorism. Okay, but there's a difference between many and all. So all of them, is there one in particular that is not... Again, like you said, words are important. There's a difference between many and all. I, I'm, I'm not prepared to describe every single thing that unfolded in the events that I talk about in the book as an act of terrorism. I think it's too sweeping a term. What, what was the last definition from Merriam-Webster for terrorism that we all agreed that's an acceptable source for, for definition? What was that last definition there? The informal one? Yes, that ma'am. They yes, ma'am. An extremely disruptive or annoying person or thing. That, that sounds pretty sweeping to me. That's, that's what I thought. Which, which component, if I just can echo her question again, which component from your book do you not think qualifies as disruptive or extremely annoying? I don't. I don't know what you're what you're asking me to uh, to speak to. Are you talking about uh, one of the major themes of the book, like urban renewal or the drawing of municipal boundaries? Are you talking about a particular episode? Oh, episodes. I'm sorry, episodes. Like Mr. Thornton episodes. Yeah, I. I. I mean, I'll just repeat my answer. I'm not prepared to describe every single thing that happens in the course of this story as an act of terrorism. I think it's a misuse of the word. And I think if you use the word uh, in that sweeping a manner, it loses meaning, uh, and it loses meaning where it's important. Oh, okay. Well, I just thought that when I went back to read the book, I would be able to identify them and agree with you. But I guess I can't do that because it's too sweeping. Darn. Oh, well. But I do have another, again, a question about trust, because you said to read the book, you know, somebody asks if they can trust you, I'll just read the book. But, I mean, again, a definition, according to Merriam-Webster, a sure relies on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. So, one in which confidence is placed. And I'm guessing, because you said this book is geared towards the community, you would... I mean, what do you expect the community to do? To just go, oh, that's a cute story. What do you expect them to act on what you read if you've written to, for the community? Uh, yes, and in fact, I've been in uh, a number of community meetings in St. Louis where we discuss so this be, research so and, trusting and the research you, of others. So trusting, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Excuse me, I really didn't mean to do that. So trusting in your material is very important, yes? Yes. 
Okay. So when someone asks if they can trust you because this is your material, and most academics, when they write in something, they it's not something they read about for 20 minutes. They usually spend years and years in this information. Is that correct? Yes. So now I'm not saying I can't trust you to cook me food or anything like that, but in this particular matter, to help us understand the context of white supremacy, should we be able to trust you based on the information that you've given us? Based on the information in the book, yes. Okay. Thank you. That's all I have. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, and just with words, uh, one thing I can do with Adobe, uh, even though, like I said, my uh, iBook and Kindle Reader, uh, they work much more efficiently. Uh, I was able to go through and count the word racism, the word racist, terror, terrorism. All four of those terms combined total are used three times in the actual text of the book. The word terror is not used at all in the book. The word terrorism is not used at all in the book. And the word racism is used one time in the book. That's not true. The word racism is used, I would guess, over a hundred times in the book. Uh, you are incorrect. Well, I'm just, I'm going by, I'm going by the Adobe here and it's racism is in the text, actual body of the text. I found it one time. It is in the, you know, references, footnotes, all of that. Uh, and I mean, I wasn't surprised, even you saying hundreds, that would be, I suspect, I strongly suspect that you're practicing white supremacy racism because it stood out to me immediately. Uh, when I started reading your book, uh, it's been some days ago when I started reading your book some time ago, I think I got through about the first 25 page in a story like this. You started with cookie Thornton. You got the outline of Michael Brown Jr. on the cover of the book. And with all of this, the word racism, I was not seeing it in the book. So I'm not surprised using the Adobe search one time in the actual body of the text. It's definitely not 100. And for you to even say to put a number on it, I pay attention to that. When people, you could just say, I don't agree. I think it's in there a lot to put a number on it a hundred times. I strongly suspect you're practicing white supremacy racism because race relations is used in this book way more than the term racism. Not to mention white supremacy is not used at all, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I wanted to get back to the question was asked about white people or who is more informed about racism, white supremacy, You <laughs> making that outlandish statement. And I have to state that words are important. I thought about that outlandish to say racism is used in this book a hundred times. Uh, it knocked me off of the page I was to get to my next question, which was about the who is more informed uh, about white supremacy, racism. Uh, and you have several passages in your book that I think get to this point in a very important manner. I want to read both of these because they're not very long. So the first, and I highlighted both of them. Uh, the first one, this is on page two, very early in the book. <clears throat> you write a revised plan called for staging redevelopment so that new homes on Elmwood Park's east side would be available before residents on the west side were faced with relocation. This is removal of the Negroes. But none of this happened. County officials used the idea of stage development to placate federal officials, but privately and in their communications with Elmwood Park residents pressed public housing in St. Louis as the best option. 
For Esther Brooks, who had owned her own home in Elmwood Park for over 30 years, the option of taking an apartment in the city's notorious Pruitt Igo Complex, there's a documentary about that place, far removed from family, friends, and her place of employment was entirely obnoxious to her. That's one. And then this comes up again, the same idea. Let me see how quickly I can get through to the other highlight. This is on. All right. It's one more. This one is a little bit further down in the book. This is and talk about patterns. I think that's so important. I mentioned that earlier. So this is on page uh, 101 uh, of the book, about the halfway chunk of the text. Uh, You write. In its initial planning, the county did what it could. And I'll even pause right there. That's what I mean. There's a lot of minimizing. It's not the county like the county doesn't do anything. It's white people. (laughs) That's what I mean. That's that's another one that pointed out to me where white people are not just being indicted explicitly. And this is a common pattern in how white people, when they write about these type of events, the county just sit and think about that. I mean, man, I got to remind me to tell you about King County, Washington, before the program ends. That's so important. But King County, Washington does not do anything to me. It would be white people in whatever position of power that they have in King County government. That would be what it is. Not King County uh, did this or St. Louis County, St. Louis County did this in its initial planning. The County white people did what it could to placate federal officials with the promise of stage redevelopment while sticking to its original assumption that most of the Elmwood park families would never return. But even on this score, its efforts were patently insincere started the program. Woo. The LCRA argued publicly that displaced families had many options, but admitted privately that such options were limited. Just those two patterns right there, because that pops up repeatedly, that pattern uh, in the book, unless I'm lying. uh, That right there to me suggests that whites are more informed about racism because they're having private conversations where they already know what's going to happen. These Negroes are not coming back. And more importantly, we know where they're going. They don't know that. And we're even telling them false information, obfuscating. We're coming out publicly and saying one thing, and we already know that's not what's going to happen. That right there means that you are more informed about this process because you are spreading disinformation. Isn't that correct, uh, Professor Gordon? Uh, no, I don't think it's correct. What's, what's incorrect because about the that? Residents, the residents of Elmwood Park were fully inf- uh, aware of what was going on as well. They understood exactly what was happening to them. So I don't think that one in in that in that one narrow uh, episode that you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is the way in which the white citizens in the county communicated the relocation options to the black residents of Elmwood Park, mm-hmm. I think both understood exactly what was going on. Well, that's your view. Uh, I have always taken the position, the people that have plans and you show where they have maps about redevelopment. Generally speaking, I take the view just trying to follow logic. The people that have the plans about what they want this place to look like five years down the road, 10 years down the road. Those people are more informed than the people that do not have those plans and are the targets of those plans and what's going to happen. But I have frequently been told that people do not agree with that assessment. You have to come to your own conclusions. A uh, person that dialed in uh, from a blocked number. Did you have a question for professor Colin Gordon? 
Uh, yes, I did. Greetings to Gus and greetings to uh, all the callers and listeners on the line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, greetings, uh, Professor. Is it Professor Gordon? Yes, ma'am. Uh, okay. Um, a caller asked you, um, I believe he asked you, what was your constructive intent with writing this book? And you started with... Um, you started your answer saying, you know, like most scholars, I want to do, et cetera, and et cetera. Correct? That's, that's, that's how you started, correct? Yep, fair enough. Okay. Um, that word fair. But yet, when Gus asked you if you thought, based on your research, based on your experience as a white person, whites are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, you said that you could not speak for them because you weren't in any position to do that. You weren't an expert. You weren't qualified to speak on that, but yet you were qualified to speak on other scholars because you are one and, um, you know, based on your experience and, and things of that nature. So my question is this, why were you able to speak on one group of people and you weren't able to speak? speak on the other? Uh, I have a particular area of expertise that is based on uh, doing archival research in local history to uncover the mechanisms of segregation to the degree that uh, that illuminates what uh, the motives of uh, and the impacts of those policies were at the time, I feel qualified to make assessments. But as, as for the, you know, the sort of larger question about um, that, that, uh, that you suggested, that not, does not lie in my area of ac academic expertise. And I'm not gonna uh, spitball uh, a response. Sir, I don't know what spitball means, but I'll also say what you just said is not true at all because what I just spoke about didn't have anything to do with any specific, um, I guess you could say, subcategory of expertise. You spoke for scholars in general. You didn't speak for scholars in a particular area or any of that. No, I'm not, which is I'm not you, speaking. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. You're not speaking. No, I. My. I'm res, I am uh, talking on this program, responding to callers based on my research into the causes and consequences of highly racialized public policies in the suburbs of St. Louis. And that's what I'm prepared to talk about. I don't I have the training it. or the mm -hmm. expertise to speak to uh, other questions. Sir, but you did that. You spoke to the, you spoke on scholars in general. You said like most scholars, but you couldn't speak on 
you know, white, given that, you know, you're one of them. Just basically asking based on, you know, your experience and the, the, the white people that you're around and things of that nature. But you were able to do that just based on being a scholar and, and speaking about most scholars based on, um, I guess, the scholars that you're around and just you being one in general. I'll just say this in, in close. The point is, you said like most scholars, you, you, you spoke on most scholars and you generalized in that way. But you wouldn't do that um, when it came to the specific question that um, Gus asked you. And I think, you know, if anyone goes back and, and listens to this broadcast, they can um, the, the, the deception that you practiced um, in that contradiction is very apparent. And that was it. I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Gus. I'm not practicing deception. I will generalize about the work of other scholars that I know. I'm happy to sort of, for example, uh, talk about the St. Louis experience against the experience of other cities, because in order to make sense of St. Louis, I've read the work of scholars on other cities. But none of that qualifies me to answer, you know, the large question about, you know, uh, what most whites believe. Or, uh, as you put it, I think, Gus, uh, you know, the uh, who knows more uh, in a given circumstance. It's not the way I approach things. And it's not, uh, again, uh, an area in which I feel qualified to speak context of white supremacy university of iowa's history department professor colin gordon uh we've been discussing his book citizen brown uh, i said those metaphors he said spitball a response i said wow look at that uh, and then uh he has an article uh professor gordon uh that's also about ferguson uh making ferguson segregation and uneven development in st louis and st louis county in ferguson's fault lines the race quake that rocked the nation, even that last one, the race quake. Don't even know what that is. And I'd never heard that one either. Uh, spitball or response. That is a new one. Uh, I wanted to give because I have one more question. Thomas in New York. Let's hear your question. Oh, thank you very much. And um, thank you, sir, for your uh, time this evening. Um, I have one more question for you, and um, I'm not asking you for your scholarly expertise, just your personal honesty. Um, it's a yes or no question, if you could just elaborate. Um, do you think we would have a system of racism and white supremacy if the end product of sexual relations between blacks and whites was a white child and not a black child? I have no idea. I have a question, Gus. Uh, hang on one second. I didn't see we had folks that we missed totally. Imhan DC, did you have a question for Professor Gordon? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, my question is, I, I had just a few questions. Uh, my first question is, uh, where are white people indig indigenous to? Where are white people indigenous to? I'm not an anthropologist.
not an anthropologist. I guess that's his response. Did you have more with that question or another question, Imhan DC? Oh, that throws me off a quite a a, a whole lot because I don't know if I should. If I ask another question, I kind of I had a question to go with that, and my next, do I have another question? Um, will he give me the definition of white supremacy? Whose definition? Okay, I didn't know if you were on the line. Um, I wasn't speaking to, to Gus for the definition. I was um, actually asking for your definition. Of white supremacy. I mean, I would, uh, for, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I'll reiterate, I'm a scholar of a particular kind of setting, so I can only define, you know, my working definition of white supremacy would be, you know, as I see it in my own work, but it would be a, a, uh, a systematic pattern of racial stratification, racial inequality, and racial oppression across, you know, all realms of uh, human endeavor from, you know, education to housing to employment. That would be my working definition. Can any person be a white supremacist? I think by your definition, it didn't, it, it didn't, uh, you didn't explain which person is a white supremacist, which isn't, you know, like in the definition, who actually does these actions that you're referring to? White people. Yes, sir. So can I ask um, my first question? Where are white people sure. indigenous to? Yes, where are white people indigenous I don't know the answer to the question because I have, don't have that expertise. I mean, you'd have oh. to ask an, uh, you know, an anthropologist who you know, understands uh, you know, large uh, pan-historical demographic patterns. Really? Okay. Well, are white people indigenous to America? No. Okay. The black Americans, are they indigenous to America? No. Uh, okay. Um, who is indigenous to America? Native Americans. Nate, okay, okay. I, maybe I'm, my words are, maybe I'm not using the right words. I thought Native American and Indigenous American was the same thing. Um, and then, and then when we, okay, but a black person, we, we know what that is because I, I can say black person, and then we, we're, we're speaking about the color brown, and then we can say white person, and we're speaking about the color peachish peach or some some color like that but we say indigenous or we say um native american and i don't know who you're talking about but you said you don't know what white people are indigenous to um you do know that black people are not indigenous to america but who are native americans i'm i'm, I'm maybe maybe i don't have all my questions 
to ask or maybe you're ask, answering the questions in such a way that you're being confusing? I, well, I, I mean, I don't... Neither, neither uh, those that we conventionally call white or those that we call black or African American are indigenous to North America. Native Americans or indigenous Americans are. But I, I don't, um, I think we agree on that. I'm just not sure what, what the question is that you're asking that follows from that. Oh, uh, well, um, I thought that black people were indigenous to America. I thought the, the Native Americans, the indigenous Americans were black people, unless they were an, another color that you could tell me about. Um, I know that they're not white people. Um, but but then my question would have been, well, then if white people are over here and they're not indigenous to this place, to America, but they control America, um, then my question would be, um, is this a hegemony? Is that the word? How you say the word hegemony? Is is, yeah. is would you would you would you call what white people are doing controlling uh, an area that they're not from and controlling the people that are in that area? Do they do you call that a hegemony or a or a uh, um, hegemony? If I'm saying the word right, um, you 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 could use that word. I mean, I think I would call it uh, colonialism or settler colonialism. Terrorism. Okay, well, those were my questions. Um, again, I, I really would like to know where white people are indigenous from, in your, or indigenous to, and you're a white person, so. Uh, but I, I'd like to know that, but thank you. Right on. Retired firefighter, a last question for Professor Gordon. Yes, uh, I would like to know uh, the guest's answer to the problem. How can this problem be solved? Uh, solved? Solved is a pretty weighty word. Uh, I think, you know, what my research suggests is that there are uh, a number of things that uh, we could do as a community in St. Louis to alleviate some of these problems. That doesn't solve them. I don't, I don't pretend that it does. Do you have an answer? I, well, I can, I, can answer the, I can answer the question the way I rephrased it, which is... Well, I, I would just like to know what, we, what your answer is, what your personal answer is to the problem. What my book points to as... Uh, constructive avenues of policy would be breaking down municipal boundaries, equalizing funding uh, across uh, school districts and municipalities, consolidating uh, the fragmented and sort of deeply racist uh, municipal court system in St. Louis, and pursuing locally, state level, or nationally, some sort of system of reparations that can reverse the generational damage that's been done to African-American opportunity and African-American wealth 
by all of these uh, racial housing uh, and property uh, policies. Well, you're, you're, I think you're speaking of a local situation, but the host asked you very early in the program, uh, well, he didn't ask you, he gave, he gave the, uh, his meaning to the global system of racism, white supremacy, and you agreed with it, I believe. And uh, to that, I would, like to, I would like for you to give us your answer to that problem. Not I just a problem. I don't that, have an answer. Okay. Right Not on. what I studied. Not what he studies. All right. You don't have to speak any, any further on it. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, one thing that you do study is Citizen Brown, race, democracy, and inequality in the St. Louis suburbs. Now, uh, Professor Gordon uh, asserted uh, arrogant expertise on how many times the word racism is in his book. Uh, he had the audacity to put a number on it, 100, and claimed expertise about the piece of technology I'm using to say that there was something faulty with either the software, my computer, what have you, with what I'm using. Uh, that is going to have to be verified. So you are going to have to go on your device at some point and check and give an account of how many times the word racism, and I'll even, pfft, whew, you can add racist, add both of them, and see if they are in the body of the work, not references from a book somebody else wrote that has racism in the title or something, but actually in the body of your work, Citizen Brown, is the word racism used one, I said it's in there once, so we're not close, wide chasm, <laughs> wealth gap, racial gap, there it is. You said it was in there a hundred times, I'm saying it's in there one time. And if we add racist three combined, three uses, that I'm saying it is a major act of white supremacy on your part. In fact, I'm saying it's deliberate. And I need that verified. So if you have a perfectly working computer, Kindle, mobile device that you think is working in tip-top shape, Let's get that verified immediately. How many times is the word racism used in Citizen Brown? Are you checking? Are you getting your device, Professor Gordon? Waiting for, for the verification. Are you checking that out for us? Hopefully he is on the iPhone or sitting down at the computer to get verification. How many times is the word racism in the actual body of the text? Again, not the references, not the title to someone else's text. Your work. How many times is the word racism in the book? We'll be here tomorrow. Book club. I hope Professor Gordon, I hope you you are checking and will let us know once you've done a search and can verify how many times it's in the book.
if this is one of those where you're not going to respond, I would appreciate you being able to at least say that so we're not just wasting time uh, on the air because this is important. We've been saying that all night. Words are important. Uh, and this one, especially since there's such, you know, disagreement. This is not we're close metaphor. We're, we're not splitting hairs. I'm saying racism is in the book one time and you're saying it's in there a hundred times. Well, let's find out. So I hope you are looking and not wasting our time. Well, I will make sure that I'm using the time while we wait for Professor Gordon to give us the tally of how many times racism is in the book. Should be easy. You should be able to pull it up. You should have perfectly working device where you can pull it up and tell us how many times it's in the book accurately. But we will be here tomorrow for our book. Oh, do we have a number? Let's get it. Let's get it. No, I think that was me. Oh. I was excited. Like, let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> My machine is not working correctly. I would like to know that too, because that would be quality information because I do this on the book club tomorrow all the time. It's important when you're reading books that are about white supremacy, racism, or at least that seems to be what they're talking about. But the word racism doesn't get used in the book. They end up using words like microaggressions, white privilege, discrimination, Race relations. I talked about that in James. That's another one where he didn't use the word terrorism. He didn't use the word terror, but he used the word race relations like a hundred times. Professor Gordon, it looks like his line dropped, so he hung up. I just tweeted, that is a major act of white supremacy. We had a white man whose book is trash, by the way, that's why I didn't say read it. We had a white man who had the audacity to say so many times, oh, I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'm not even an expert on white people. Just said, oh, yeah, I'm a white man. But I'm not even an expert on white people. I can't even do that. But he had expertise, not just on how many times the word racism was in a book he wrote to say that I was wrong, way wrong. I say it's in there one time. You say it's in there a hundred times. And then... Your equipment is not working correctly. You have expertise even on the computer that I'm using. I feel so vindicated. So, so vindicated when we are on the book club and I do my word count. Anybody that's on the book club who has heard me when I go through and say, oh, the word terrorism in this book one time, the word race relations. Has anybody heard me do my word count when I do the book club at all? Yes, sir. Yes. Re- words are hugely important. I totally, I think uh, Anthony Browder was on the program, and I think some other, it's not just one person, he's just what I'm thinking of. They were talking about um, the difference when you read like a hard copy of a book and you can actually put your hand on the pages and turn and read them and how that stimulates a different part of your brain. Absolutely. That is a thousand percent correct, and I totally agree. But... I can't do the word count when I read a hard copy book. That is one. There are several things, but that that is one thing in particular that I love about ebooks because sometimes patterns 
words are so important and repetitive word use is extremely important. So you just keep saying white privilege, white privilege, discrimination, microaggression. That just becomes the way to talk about racism. And that was a point I wanted to make sometime or man, when we say it is about white supremacy, racism above all. That means sometimes you are not writing a book to make a million dollars. This is not going to be a Harry Potter series. This is not Fifty Shades of Grey. This is about white supremacy racism. It could end up being where a book like Citizen Brown, he was just on uh, St. Louis Public Radio with black people, no less, who did not question him, ask him if he was racist, ask him if he heard any racist jokes. Uh, But this will end up, could very easily end up being the book that your child, if they have to do a report on what happened in Ferguson, this will be the book that they read, Citizen Brown. This will be the lens and how you interpret that event in a book where the word racism is not used a hundred times. The word racism is in there one time. That is hugely important when I say words, just being mindful. And I knew this book, which I was so not even motivated uh, about the program today. It was terrible, even though it was a very sunny, beautiful day in uh, Seattle. I got to do yoga and I was still ugh, ugly day all day long. Um, and even made even more so, I've been reading this book for days and knew it was trash. I just told you, I've been reading this book. I tell people all the time, prepping for these programs, reading is more important than watching television. I love reading the books of white people because you really get to study and understand racism, white supremacy, and how they think just with the words that they use or the words that they don't use. You're talking about all this and not saying racism. You're talking about all this and not saying white supremacy, but you will say race relations, some tacky phrasing like that. You're not even indicting white people. The paragraph that I read where you're saying the county did this to the niggers of St. Louis. What kind of nonsense is that? And I know for some people, they you know might hear that and say, oh, you're just, you know, going for nonsense. You don't have to say white people every time, or this is a scholarly. If it's scholarly, it should be even more attentive to detail. It shouldn't be a scholar at a major university who comes out and says the word racism is in my book a hundred times and it's in there once. All I can conclude is that you are very sloppy with your scholarship or you're practicing racism, white supremacy. And I'm going to take the latter. That was following logic. I'm going to take the latter because there's so much detail in the book. There's so many references in the book. He sent me several e-versions uh, e of the book with the details. He does not strike me as someone who performs in a sloppy manner. And certainly to be a tenured university professor, you don't get to be sloppy, but you do get to support the system of white supremacy, racism. Words are super. He hung. I cannot. I can't say I can't believe it, but I mean, wow. On words. How many times is the word racism in your book? And that's where you hang up the phone. That is the tackiness and commitment, dedication to white supremacy, racism. No obfuscation right there at all. Let's see. Retired. Can I be, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, it's a it's a pattern uh, that I notice. Uh, a lot of white people uh, of his background, scholars, quote unquote, and uh, he, I think he even used the word expertise uh, when it comes to uh, racist white supremacy, at least in some segment. Uh, they, 
do not want to answer or speak on uh, the issue from a personal standpoint, as though there's some sort of disconnect between what a white person writes about or talk about and what they think personally. And uh, I find that also as a consistent practice of racism and white supremacy when they do so. That that plays a large part in when I was asking him a question about, you know, uh, can he be trusted? I mean, he should he should he should be willing to answer that question, whether it is on a uh the cows or if I was a student at Iowa State University and he was having a lecture, and I asked him that question, he should be willing to answer that question. Uh, that is vital. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I have to explain that on this program uh, on why that's vital. Uh, and uh, certainly a white person uh, of his magnitude that he pertains to be should be willing to answer such a basic question. And he didn't even have an answer to the problem that he is writing about. You know, so what's the, what's the relevancy of, of him? You know, that, 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 puts, that puts weight on trust if he don't even have an answer to the problem that he's talking about, you know? And uh, so, yeah, those are my thoughts. Uh, uh, last but not least, uh, I will be willing to uh, read live uh, because right now I don't, I don't really for sure know how to utilize the uh, recording, uh, but I'd be willing to read live if, if, uh, if, if, if it's okay. Much obliged uh, for the effort, dear sir. Uh, I do try to avoid the live reads just because I don't know about you, but I know I, uh, well, I suspect even the professional narrators generally uh, might need a take or two, you know, with the uh, pronunciation sometimes or reading a book for the first time, or at least they prep in advance. I suspect you have to be really, really skilled and with some practice to do it, you know, live without any, Whoops, let me, let me get that sentence again type thing. So uh, we will try to see if we can uh, find a person uh, who can do us for this week solid and then can pick up next week, hopefully after you are back safe and sound in Florida. But thank you uh, for the for the offer. Hopefully we won't have to won't have to do that for uh, Gerald Horn his biography on Paul Robeson uh, book club reading is more important than watching television. I do have the ebook for that one. So I can boop, 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 go through and, and do the word search and all that, which I do think can be very informative, very helpful. Uh, did other folks uh, have a question comment what they heard from professor Colin Gordon, highly suspected Ray. He is just with the, Number of times racism is is in the book for him to say it's in there a hundred times for that alone. He is not trustworthy uh, because it is not in not even close unless, you know, my my equipment is very, very faulty. And um, local, go ahead, ma'am. Oh uh, no, no, you can finish your comment. I can wait. Go ahead. I, I, I was, I was just going to say because uh, uh, the people 
like himself, quote-unquote scholars, they have a practice of limit, limiting the global system of racist white supremacy. And it's all, it's interconnected. It's, it's an extension. So if he is so much of an expert on what he writes about, then he should be able to apply that extensively to the global system. And, you know, for, and for him not to answer that question is, is I mean, it's, it's paramount, uh, you know, even for a non-white person to, to, uh, to have at least an, an opinion, you know, but a white person, they should be coming with some answers. That's it. The female caller. Hi, I just want to thank you again for the um for the program. I think it's instructive. I know sometimes, you know, even if we read a book that we don't like, I think it's constructive, like you said, to, to find out what people are thinking. So I just want you to, well, I want you to be encouraged by that. I know it's not always a good feeling, but, you know, it is constructive because you are actually trying to solve the problem. And I think this man, I know he's supposed to be a scholar, but I think he's crazy. According to memory of Webster, full of cracks or flaws or not mentally sound, marked by thought or action that lacks reason. If you're a scholar, it seems like some of those things he should have been able to answer. So according to memory of Webster, he might be crazy. I do know Dr. Francis Cress Welsing did caution uh, on the cow specifically. I believe it was spring 2012 uh, at the very start of the program about uh, describing whites as being crazy uh, and saying that uh, frequently what we are observing is someone doing exactly what they intended to do, uh, which is practice white supremacy racism, uh, which, you know, it may look quote unquote crazy uh, because it is not logical to harm someone just because they have darker complexion. Uh, but if that's what that person wants to do and they set about the business of doing that, and that includes lying or not answering questions or using confusing terms, that's just practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, and I think that's, uh, well, they, they could be, I'm sorry, but they could be equivalent in this case that he was acting crazy to confuse us. They could oh. be equivalent in this case. Well, I would, that's a different way of, of stating it. If someone is behaving in a irrational manner to cause confusion, that's especially if someone classified as white is doing that, then yeah, I would state it that way. And, and that would be stated as an act of racism. This person is behaving uh, in a delusional manner uh, to try to confuse us. Uh, act of racism. That's the way I would articulate it, because sometimes that word crazy can absolve people of guilt and intentionality. Sounds like the way to describe Donald Trump. Right. 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 Yes, ma'am. Ivy. Man, um, it was just, I don't know, it was so obvious to me when he just was uh, starting to be deceptive and intentionally vague and when he was pretty much just going down the road of, you know, refusing to answer certain questions, he was really getting a feel for your lesser confusion, that you are 
you know, less confused and the things that you, that you said when you mentioned about, you know, white power and things of that nature. And, you know, he's, he's a person who's deliberately, um, who's deceptive, um, because I think deception and being, you know, deliberate about it is pretty much, that's, that's redundant, but he's, um, you know, he's deceptive just even, even using the word, you know, privilege and things of that nature. He's one of those white people who, you know, want to minimize, um, racism. Um, and I just think that, uh, he was just, uh, certainly purposely not answering questions and you could just kind of, you could see it. And, and I, to, to catch him in just the, the generalization of, of scholars, that's why I'm glad somebody asked him that question in terms of what, what was his motive that he was willing to, to speak on, you know, what, what most scholars intentions are, but he wasn't willing to speak on, you know, how most white people feel, um, in his experience. Um, about racism, whether or not they're greatly pained and things of that nature. I had a question, Gus. Did he agree with your definition of racism, or did he take any issue with the term uh, dedicated or any or any of that? He said uh, he thought that it was accurate, the definition, uh, and then he quickly pivoted to his own work being about uh, local uh, issues and not, you know, that broad or something on a global scale or whatever, uh, but his work being about global affairs in the Missouri area. But before all of that, he did say that he thought it was an accurate definition. Oh, okay, thank you. And I actually thought he was going to hang up, and I thought, um, you know, he was getting more and more, um, I guess, uncomfortable with the, I guess, the uh, focused, for lack of words, the focused questioning um, and the, the directness um, just you saying that you thought he was practicing racism. I said that he was um, being deceptive. Um, the things that um, the brilliant female caller uh, said to him tonight when she pulled out the uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, and um, I knew. <laughs> oh, I knew things were going to get so rough when MIDC was uh, going to talk to him. Like I was like, oh man, he's in for it. Um, but. Yeah, I, I I kind of figured. I'm, I'm surprised he stayed on as long as he did. I I I figured that uh, that he would hang up and he would he would bail out. That was it. I mute my line. Thanks everyone. Thanks Gus. Mm-hmm. Definitions so important, and I thought that was important as well. That he was so staunch that I am not gonna say that every aspect of this is terrorism. Well, which which parts are excluded? Which parts do you think don't qualify? Well, you know, hmm. <laughs> can't like if you're so strong, like there should be at least one component that you can pick out, like what they did with the school system, the policing, the housing, not employing black businesses, some aspect of this that you could point on and say, okay, well, this right here, the racist email, something. I don't really know if that qualifies as terrorism. Yeah, it's incorrect, but that's not necessarily terrorism. And he couldn't even pick out one component, especially when it gets to... So the definition for terrorism, annoying, disruptive, and extremely annoying. Which component of this is not disruptive and extremely annoying? That's what I mean. Like when you have a definite... Definitions 
are crucial. And that's when you can see the insincerity of whites, in my view, their commitment uh, to racism, white supremacy. But I thought that was so uh, important uh, as well as uh, his, yeah, his responses to, to the questions in general. Not accustomed to being questioned with suspicion, which I think is the case for most whites. Uh, did other folks? Hello. Yes, Can I be heard? We'll get our female. I'm sorry, I go, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I have to cut you off again, but um, when I started listening to the program, I started listening in the TuneIn app, and I heard you, and I didn't hear him. Because you were like, I'm like, who is he talking to? Because I can't hear them. So I started listening over the phone. So you might want to just check that when you go back and review. I just want to bring that up. Thank you. Oh, much obliged. I think uh, it was not the audio from the program line was not uh, on the tune in uh, for a bit, but I think I caught that a little bit in, but yeah, I think I I did see that it seemed like it wasn't going out. So corrected that it should be working now. If folks want to listen on tune in or where it should be, should have been working there for a while now. Uh, If that was it from the female caller, uh, much obliged. The male caller, thank you for your patience, sir. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting how you kind of caught him up uh, when me in Toronto asked him about uh, his uh, if, if he got any money from the book sales, and he said no. But then you followed up with a question about his appearances, and I guess he admitted that he had got some uh, he had got some money for the appearances. I don't think he said how much, but I'm assuming you know he probably got. Jane Elliott, Tim Wise money, you know, $12,000 appearance, you know, so uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, that's how I'm in my life. It's so easy for whites to, you know, be compensated for that sort of thing. That I should have asked that or one of us, you know, should have, that was my question. I should have asked that how much he how much he got for those uh, engagements. But it's so easy uh, for them to be called. And as I said, equally or more important, really. Uh, this becomes the scholarship. Uh, this is like a valid interpretation of racism in Ferguson in a book that only has racism in it one time. This is very common. How <laughs> him saying the entire time on the or so consistently that oh I'm not an expert and I'm on an expert and I'm going to be an expert witness, but I'm not an expert. I can't tell you about white people. This will end up becoming the expert guide to understanding racism or it'll be race relations in Ferguson. Uh, and I think that he understands white people understand the power uh, of. So that's how you end up with something like a broken windows policy from someone like him uh, at an academy or a university where maybe you don't get, you know, five million dollars in a New York Times bestseller for the book. Because I think he said it was supposed to be free, freely available, but it ends up having a huge impact. Uh, with regards to refining, expanding the practice of racism, white supremacy, and how even racism, white, uh, white racism, white supremacy is talked about. All very important. Were there other folks who had questions, comments? Yes, my my observation is on how precise uh, that white people are in. Uh, in their codified racist uh, understandings and articulations. Uh, I've been participating on, on your program almost, if not all of the 10 years. And 
they are quite consistent. Now, mind you, all of these white people perceivably are strangers, but yet they, it's a, it's a, but you know, by us being on this program for so long, we can see a consistency out of these people who are normally a total strangers to each other. And, you know, if, if anybody would want to know on how the global system of racism is practiced and why it's so it dominates people who they consider not to be white, uh, it certainly can be observed on, on this program uh, on how consistent they are and how concise they are in their codification, their racist codification. Thank you. Absolutely. That is no act patterns. We talked about that. That is no accident. The obfuscating, the words that they use, uh, which questions they kind of back away from, all of that is very important. And uh, just being able to see those patterns. I, I was teaching yoga in the park this summer. A cow's listener was present. And she said, you know, you have to have more white guests on the program. That is important. Opportunities to question white people and just to observe patterns to learn what it means to be white is important. Uh, I think that's the thing that we don't do enough of questioning white people. It's studying, questioning and studying whites. Super important. Were there other folks? who? Oh, uh, be in Toronto. Did you have commentary to share? Um, yes, uh, thank you, uh, Gus, and um, hello to callers and listeners. Um, it was just, I just noticed that um, he he just, Professor Gordon, uh, just seemed to answer right on his code. Um, whenever, it, whenever he felt that it was... Um, going away from what he was willing to answer, um, I guess in his own way, controlling, trying to control and dominate the, the conversation by controlling what he will answer to and what he will not. Um, you know, he'll say that he's staying in his lane, which I I was curious. And I, if he had stayed on, I would have been um, uh, curious enough to ask um, how do you mean? Um, it, it was just an interesting slang that he kept using, um, things of that nature. So, yeah, it was quite interesting. Thank you, and leave the line. Much obliged, being Toronto. Yeah, that was interesting use of slang. Stay in my lane. Uh, were there other folks who had questions, comments they wanted to share? I think he was lying about. Um, I think he was lying about not uh, getting paid off the book. I mean, obviously you expose him in terms of the speaking engagements, but I mean, just the, even the direct sales of the book or whatever it was that he said we don't get paid for. I think he was lying about that because I think, as I said earlier, very early on when he, you know, realized what he was dealing with, he decided he was going to stop answering certain questions. He was going to ask answer them in a certain way, and I think. Um, I think the way that, you know, I believe it was being Toronto, uh, forgive me if, if, if I'm getting that wrong, who, who said to him about, you know, getting paid off of black people, just even the way she put it, it was her, right? Yes. Uh, yes, ma'am. I believe yeah. so. 
Oh, and she's on the line. Okay, so yeah. Um, just even the way she put it, like I think that uh, you know, he decided, you know, he was gonna he was gonna lie about that. I, I just say I, I don't believe him. Um, that was it. I've said that repeatedly. I think white people they understand uh very early on uh when they are around non white people who are less confused. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, any other questions, comments, observations? Book club is tomorrow. Uh, Gerald Horn biography on Paul Robeson. It is not very long. Uh, if we have any folks who would like to do the first little bit of narrating, uh, just reading that uh, bit, getting it recorded and all set for tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, just drop me an email, and if I can get the recording sometime tomorrow, well before the program, that would be grand. Uh, let's see. Oh, Workplace Racism, Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be looking forward to sharing, hopefully, some constructive suggestions on how to solve these type of problems. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and compensatory call-in on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see. I did not enjoy reading this book. I cannot emphasize that enough. He used I, I included the segment from Minister Malcolm X because I thought that was important, him talking about you don't have uh, second-class citizens. You're either a citizen or you're a slave. System of racism, white supremacy is terrorism. It's slavery. You just have, you know, different phases of slavery. Uh, and I thought that was so important. And it's in his book so much. He says uh, uneven citizenship. That's what black people have and second class citizenship. And again, I just think all of that is uh, deliberately uh, vague, deliberately ambiguous uh, in terms of understanding. You uh, just have, and that's the way that people will talk. They'll just go around and say, "Yeah, you know, we're second class citizens," and and why you want to be more direct about what the problem is. System of racism, white supremacy, that is the problem. Not second class citizenship, not uneven citizenship, not fragmented uh, segments, and. Global. That's the see when you're saying citizen, as though the problem is just located to this particular geographic location, and that is not what we're talking about at all. Um, Excuse me. Do you have a comment, question? Uh, no, um, uh, no, I do not. Thank okay. you. Everybody, I do say, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Um, I thought that was a great question about, you know, why he has, um, I guess I want to say the chalk outline or the outline or something like that of Michael Brown Jr.'s, um, body, like on the cover of his book. Um, I forgot what he said, but I wanted to know, first of all, did do you believe, you know, what he, the answer that he gave in terms of his motive for that? And if not, what do you think was the reason that he had that on the cover? Uh, I don't. Uh, I mean, we, again, we could just go back to that word count. That's where he left at. Um, he said it's in there a hundred times and I say it's in there one time. Now, if you're going to have that on the cover, or I, I guess I, I, I am going to elaborate, but I could just pose the question. If you're going to have a book 
with a chalk outline of Michael Brown Jr.'s body on the cover of your book and and call the book Citizen Brown after Michael Brown Jr. And then have racism in the book one time, that word in the book one time. Is that adequate? If that's going to be the representation on the front cover, racism being in the book one time, do I think that this is going to do an adequate job with the subject matter? My conclusion to that, or my answer to that question is emphatic. No. Uh, And that's what I felt every agonizing sentence syllable uh, of this book. Uh, I think uh, that right there is the delectable Negro. That is black Miss Andrew. Uh, That is total exactly what Dr. Curry talks about in the man, not uh, consumption of black courses. That's how we understand black people. Death, even uh, Cokie Thornton, the example he started with at the beginning of the book, this is a dead black male. Uh, he does now he does go in and do some shooting. I do think that's important uh, because there are a number of black people who have resorted to counter violence. I think that's a point I try to make regularly because, as he said, that story didn't get a lot of attention. We love to parade black corpses out and look at the nigger that we killed here and strangled here and shot 50 times here. Love that. Put that out front and center. We'll probably have 50 documentaries about him and his corpse. Uh, That is a core aspect of white supremacy. uh, That uh, necrophilia has been a key concept on this broadcast for a decade. That's what I thought, Uh, particularly as I read the book uh, and just how uh, dishonest uh, and where it has a lot of details, but it's exactly what you heard on the program tonight. It's obfuscating. It's not being explicit about racism, white supremacy, because racism is only in the book once and white supremacy is not there at all. But, yeah, I did think that that was very uh, significant um, and in poor taste. I wish I had asked, like, if his family, like if they knew or approved, like that he get their permission uh, to do this. Like, yeah, I mean. Like, again, to have a white person to write this type of book, maybe if he had written a book or yeah, you can judge by his his conduct this evening. Or if you want to agonize through the book, either or is that deserving of, you know, this is a a fitting way to honor the memory of Michael Brown Jr. from a white man. Another question I can conclude there. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, if everybody is set for their Wednesday evening, uh, we will call it a broadcast and resume tomorrow with the book club. Again, you can drop me an email if you have spare time, need something to do with your time and energy. You can narrate the first leg of Gerald Horn's biography on Paul Robeson. Uh Should be available, I think, newer book uh, easily. Uh, we'll be ready to roll for tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific uh, retired firefighter will be able to help out down the road. Uh, much obliged for everyone's participation. I remembered. I saw today. I told you King County is named after Dr. Martin Luther King. That's another, in my view, act of racism by white people, because Dr. Martin Luther King, unless I've been misinformed, he never came to Seattle, Washington to give a speech, talk, protest. Nothing that I found that he ever hung out here, uh, but it's King County. And so they have his picture all over the place on thing. Anything that would have the, the county logo on it, boop, they'll have his face plastered. 
So I see one of the buses go by, the uh, city buses go by today, and it has this big sign up on the window. And it has, of course, King County Bus, it's got Dr. King, and it says, I, or what was it? I am in support or I am in favor of inclusion and diversity. And it had the big picture of Dr. King. And I was stunned because I said, what, is this like supposed to be like a thought bubble thing of Dr. King saying that he's about inclusion and diversity? I mean, it's, pff, man, you want to, that could be the same type of thing uh, to take a black person who was a victim of white supremacy and killed uh, and then the plaster their image up in, you know, association, whatever. But I mean, it just stood out to me as really tacky. But I did see that today. King County, that is where Seattle is in Washington State. King County. Uh, the other point, I do think uh, we all, that's why I think it's so crucial to have to question whites uh, and have whites on this program because we don't do that very often. Uh, questioning white and questioning them with suspicion, not cursing them out and just being you know, courteous, methodical, uh, trying to resemble the grandsister, Dr. Welsing. Uh, but <clears throat> I think it's important we ask a question. Uh, if they, you know, try to throw it back or, or anything where they're playing like they don't understand, I would try as best I can to only restate the question uh, and to not add a lot of talking. Um, I think when, when the question... Uh, was asked because I thought it was crucial. I think when retired firefighter, when you asked him, you know, should I trust you? And he says, and he responded, he got so defensive. He says, uh, should you not read my book? Do you think I lied in the book? Should you not listen to me? And I was like, wow, he didn't even say all of that. But that is interesting that you would jump to all of those uh, conclusions uh, immediately and I think retired firefighter, you responded and you uh, were saying, you know, well, being as a white person and all of this. And I just like, well, I think the question was was simply, should I trust you? That was that was all. <laughs> uh, so I'll add, like that would just be it. Like I wouldn't try to say a whole lot. Just ask the question again and try to add as little as possible um, in terms of explanation. Like I think that is that can be helpful uh, a lot of times. I think Mr. Fuller says that by not helping them answer uh, the question. That's something I try to improve on myself. Uh, and put, like I said, though, his response was, it was significant. Uh, the media should, you know, do you think I lied in the book? Should you not listen to me? I'm like, wow, that is, wasn't even saying all yeah, of that. But sometimes, sometimes the retired firefighter doesn't know when to shut up. So, hey, we are all still learning. I'm... Yes, sir. Still learning, still learning, uh, but we will try to do a bit more learning tomorrow. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Gerald Horn, biography on Paul Robeson, good person to learn a bit more about uh, and from a black author, uh, no less. So I don't think we'll have I think racism might be in his book a little bit more. I'll be able to check uh, and verify for sure. Words are crucial, man. Words are crucial. Said that so many times. Uh, obfuscate is one of my favorite words. I'm so glad that it was part of the theme uh, for this evening's broadcast. Obfuscate. One you can add uh, to your lexicon. See if you can get white people will give you many opportunities to use the word obfuscate. Anywho, uh, Yoga Retreat will be in Florida December 28th to January 1. Counter-racism, vegan meals, 
workshops uh, on preparing meals and counter-racism. Looking forward, uh, five days, four nights, lodging included, Chef Nadira doing counter-racist meals for the whole time that we are there. Deposit, uh, deposit of 380 US uh, due tomorrow. We were to get the price down to 730 uh, by getting better lodging. So we don't have to spend so much for that. Uh, the final portion of the fee, which is 350 uh, is due uh, the second week of December uh, tomorrow for deposits. Drop an email if you have questions, need additional information. Looking forward to hanging out uh, in Florida uh, with folks to start the new year in a constructive manner. Uh, hopefully with some delicious vittles to boot. Uh, with that, much obliged for everyone participating. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy racism. Uh, let's do all to keep, <clears throat> excuse me, keep our brain computers uh, working in an optimal manner so that we can solve the problem, certainly not depending on the likes of Professor Gordon. Uh, In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. That was one of the things that they were terrorizing uh, black citizens in St. Louis and beyond for seat belt uh, seat belt uh, violations. Just trying to minimize that as much as we can. In addition to being buckled up and sober, uh, not being on the cell phone if you are driving. That's another one. One of the another one, those little tacky. Uh, violations, just trying to minimize the contact with the Darren Wilsons, Amber Geigers of the known universe. With that creator, it has been time replace the system of white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Help us to be patient with other black people and ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cows, signing out. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.